Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 38 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Now, I don't know if you were at the Mandolin Cafe at all on Tuesday when I'm recording this here, but they had a great feature article on the front there with some incredible mandolin players, and then he even added myself. So thank you so much to Scott for all you do. It's also sponsored today by Prohibition. Uh, locations in Charleston, Savannah. Of course, they're closed right now. I play the Prohibition in Charleston every Saturday and Sunday for their brunch. It's the best brunch in all of Charleston. I love it there. They're great. Uh, I've also got two other sponsors this week. Uh, TuneFox. TuneFox.com has got a, uh, a mandolin online camp. They were going to be doing a real in-person camp, but obviously with this... Uh, epidemic stuff going on they can't do that so they're going to do it virtually and the uh teachers for the mandolin portion are tristan scroggins and casey campbell so you can't really go wrong there it's going to be an online camp hosted by tristan and casey it's may 15th and 17th and completely online which means you can learn from the comfort of your couch or practice area and they'll be teaching two classes each day and hosting a q a in the evenings with the other teachers uh, and the platform they're going to be using is interactive, so you can ask questions, and uh, you might even be able to play for them and get some feedback. And the cost is one twenty-five, and you can sign up at tunefox.com/camp. So be sure to check that out if you've uh, if you've got some downtime. Tristan and Casey are incredible players. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, longtime sponsor of the show, and Peghead Nation's got some incredible lessons on demand at pegheadnation.com. You can take lessons from Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, or Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, and play-along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Man, this episode is a doozy. First off, Tim O'Brien is one of my heroes, and he just was incredible to talk to. There is incredible John Hartford stories in here, uh, some awesome stories about that Nugget mandolin. Uh, it's just, it's a great one. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Tim for doing this. By the way, Tim sent me an email um, we talked some gear stuff, and I wanted to add this in there. His mandolin pickup is made by Rich Barbera, and uh, it's at www.barberatransducers.com. And the outboard preamp mixer he uses is a Detar Solstice made by Seymour Duncan, and his album The Crossing is going to be reissued and available again on May 1st. So I wanted to be sure to get that in there. Um, real quick, we're going to jump to the podcast. I want to thank my Patreon subscribers. I have three new lessons going up there uh, this week here. If you're interested, you can check out my Patreon page, support the podcast. It's eight bucks a month or four bucks a month. Or you can also just subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to. If you have a second, leave a review. Um, I've also got the Mandolin's Beer playlist where you can check out songs that are played on this podcast. And this Sunday, April 26th, I will be doing a Facebook Live solo mandolins and beer concert i'll be playing mandolin and singing some songs everything from bluegrass to 80s to all sorts of stuff so that's on my personal facebook page so i will have a link to that at mandolinsandbeer.com um, you can click on and i don't even think you need to request it i think my page is public but if you want to request a friend request to me feel free to do it and i'll add you on and that will be sunday at 7 p.m 
Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and I would love for you all to check it out. And also, um, I might have an unboxing video. I got a brand new instrument that's going to be arriving here tomorrow. And I'll talk more about that on the live stream and next week as well. But I am stoked, to say the least. So anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you for, for um, subscribing and listening every week. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, check out this episode with Tim O'Brien. Pretty Femme was in her garden when a stranger came All right, now I'd like to welcome to the podcast Tim O'Brien. Tim, how are you? I'm doing great, Daniel. How are you today? Doing good, man. Thank you very much for doing this. You are definitely one of my favorite, most influential players in the uh, mandolin world. And um, I remember the first time somebody gave me a copy of Real Time to listen to. And I just started playing mandolin and I was doing singer-songwriter gigs. And I was like, I don't know how I can make this mandolin fit into some of the stuff that I traditionally like. And then I listened to that album. And it, it blew my mind, still does to this day. I love it. So thank you for all these years of inspiration. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, I, uh, I don't know that it's notated on that record, but um, I play mandolin on there for sure. But uh, Daryl Scott plays a couple, three great mandolin tracks. Uh, he plays on, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what songs they are, but boy, he plays great mandolin. He's a great mandolin player as well. Yeah, actually, um, Walk Beside Me, does he play mandolin on that? And you play? Yeah, I'm playing a mandola on there. One foot in front of the other Stepping into the here and now I'm not sure just where I'm going But I will get there anyhow I got this That's, um, That was the first song that blew my mind and Yeah, so that just got me digging deeper into all your stuff And the thing about you that is is so cool and I think that really stands out in this in, in in the genres or I should say multiple genres that you play like you are at home doing bluegrass stuff traditional stuff jazzy stuff Irish stuff country stuff like and it, all of it feels natural like none of it feels out of place when you listen to your recordings so it's it's amazing to me well you know uh, I guess I'm um I'm eclectic to a fault, you could say. I mean, I, I don't really, I never really have concentrated on any one thing. It's kind of why I play the mandolin, you know. I, was, I got bored with playing the guitar when there was already three guitar players in the band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, so I started trying to play the violin and, the, and then the mandolin and some banjo and that kind of thing. And that's brought the bazooki in there and the fiddle, of course. Uh, anyway, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that the borders around music, I never really understood that. Uh, I mean, it doesn't compute to me. I know, I know what how they do it to, to divide it up in record stores, what's left of record stores, and on radio stations. And you know, when Spotify came out, they they came out with like 150 genres or something. But um, you know, it's all related to the same thing. And especially here in America, we tend to play music that's influenced by Africa and Europe. And, um, you know, that includes, uh, um, 
the mix in Spain, you know, the Moroccan and uh, Arabic influences too. You know, it's just all in there. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and I think it's cool that you, I mean, because you have so many releases out there and, you know, it, even when the industry was, you know, kind of at its height, the, the recording industry, there still seemed to be a lot of limitations on certain bands. You know what I mean? Like there weren't a lot of bands like Hot Rise that had people who could record 10 solo records of and still be you know like on labels and popular and and be able to have that world which you know i think speaks really well to your ability to to morph into these different things and your songwriting ability that's the other great thing man you have some killer songs made up my mind to go someplace so far away i headed west Without a sad goodbye No hugs or tears that way It's probably for the best I sent cards along the way Said I was looking for a brand new life But I never settled down Well, it's uh, like, again, it's just a part of the whole um, The songwriting thing is... um, it's the natural urge uh, among a certain crowd that you just you're going to reflect on this thing that we are living, this life we're living, and you know that's that's the artist's thing, and that's been going on since there have been people. I think they're comparing the you know their experience to to others, and uh, and then when you know somebody makes art. Um, people respond to that. I'm, I'm, I've been studying, uh, I got to get off the subject a little bit, but I've been, I've been uh, reading a book called the, uh, subversive history of music by a guy named Ted Gioia, I guess, G I O I A. Anyway, it's real interesting. And, um, it, you know, he kind of deals with music where, it, where, it, where the innovations come from. But he also mentions, uh, at one point the audience and, um, how you, music used to be so communal. There was really nobody, there was no divide between the performer and the audience. They were actually all making music collectively and uh, they still do that in some cultures. But um, we're all an audience to all the art that we've ever seen and we're all reflecting on it. And uh, we probably all have a little different interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. And so that leads to a lot of hijinks in the world. You know, a lot of people <laughs> are writing songs and painting pictures and they're reinterpreting, you know, uh, old music and new music and kind of making it into something completely different. And it's all, uh, it's all a big swirl of kind of humanity and just, I guess we're a reflective beings. We have some kind of thing that other animals don't have, or at least, we're not aware of what other animals have in that regard. Right. So I think it's just kind of a natural thing to want to check out the world and comment on it and having musical instruments and some, some thoughts about the way things are in my head, you know, just observations, those two things together kind of pretty soon they're going to chemically react and turn into a song. (laughs) 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 That's a long way around to answer it no i love it man that's great i'm gonna have to check that book out too definitely definitely plenty of reading time going on right now so yeah no it's fantastic uh 
the music, the audience, uh, it's really interesting. The audience kind of, they, they sit silently in some ways, but they really have a big effect on the performer and, um, and about how and why he does it, he or she does it. And, um, it really can um, smarten you up and uh, it can make things happen. And uh, it's a funny time we're living in right now where there's a lot of people performing into a computer and don't get the reaction. Yeah. And then you also have the sort of amazing reaction, a great audience applause, sustained applause for somebody like John Prine when he does. It's like they come out and just are applauding to this day. I mean, it's two weeks uh, gone by and everybody's still applauding John Prine. And I, I think that's fantastic. So you never know where the audience is going to come up and how, how you're going to feel their reaction. Right. Right. And it's not for us to know. I mean, that's another thing like the audience, like playing a gig. Um, I, I have no way of measuring what people are hearing. I, I don't, I don't know. I know what I, what I hear, mm-hmm. but there's a whole, the music is in between us, between those of us that are performing it and those who are listening. It's somewhere in the middle there. And, uh, how it lands in everybody's heads and minds is a, and hearts is a different thing for each person. Did you ever see that documentary? Is it songs for sugar man? That's fantastic. Yeah. That's a great example of that. Like this guy had no idea he was this huge music star in another country. No idea. <laughs> yeah, know? it's amazing. And yeah, yeah. That's so wild, man. Yeah, music is so... Um, it finds its way into places you'd never expect. I mean, it's wily. It just kind of sneaks in like a virus. It just kind of <laughs> sneaks in under, under the door, you know, into a drawer, and then you open up the drawer and it jumps out at you and everything's different. And... uh that's uh, sugar. Uh, yeah, searching for sugar man. What a Search great film. You. Yeah, well, that's an excellent one. Well, uh, real quick before we go into a little bit of your past, I'd love to bring up your new album, your newest album, I should say, the, the Tim O'Brien Band, which came out last year. Yeah, we, um, these guys, uh, Patch Sauber and um, Shad Cobb and Mike Bubb and my partner Jan and I, we have been playing uh, for, I guess, the last three years as a regular band when, when I can have a band on a stage with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can afford it because Jan and I do a lot of duos as well. Oh, cool. And that really pays the bills. You know, you can sort of rob the bank a little bit and then save up to pay for the band when when it comes around but uh yeah it's nice to have a regular band again and um to play to get into a bluegrass direction with it you know i sort of when i left hot rise i was uh trying to do something different than that and as a result i kind of avoided bluegrass and uh and left it for the times when i got with hot rise for reunions and um 
you know, the other thing is I was always the mandolin player in the bluegrass band. So this time I decided, well, in order to make it a little different, I'll play the guitar because I never got to be the lead singer guitar player in a bluegrass band. So this is kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of a wonderful, been a wonderful experience. So, um, so how did you get into mandolin? What was your gateway into that? Well, uh, it's funny. I had, uh, I've been playing some guitar for probably about, uh, about five years or something like that. And, um, five or six years and I was playing some bluegrass. I played some rock and roll and then I got into some country and bluegrass and my aunt gave me a violin. She said, well, I used to play the violin and I don't play this anymore. Maybe you can find some use for it. Well, I tried to make a sound on it and tried to figure out how the fingerings work without any instruction. And I kind of, I basically failed. I tried for six months and kind of failed. And then I went away to college about two years later and um, there was a guy there. There was my friend, a couple of friends of mine that we played music with informally um, he had a mandolin and he had, uh, some sing out magazines and that, that magazine has a thing called teach in at the back. It's got little tablature, uh, songs in tablature for uh, people who don't read music. And it had, it had, um, Fisher's hornpipe and I think Ricketts hornpipe, the two, uh, hornpipes in there. And it's, you know, uh, I knew both of those on the guitar. And so, uh, all of a sudden, I'm, it's told me where to put my fingers, on which strings, and then I went, oh, this is how you finger that tune. And then I went home and got my violin out, and I started practicing that up. And my dad, it turned out, I knew this, too. My dad had a, uh, a banjo mandolin, you know, a mandolin neck with a banjo head for a body um, that he had played in college. And he you know, he never played it at home. I don't think he ever, it never, music as instrumental music hit an instrumental instrument in his hand never really took hold, but I had that thing. He said, you can play this if you want. And so I started playing that and I had the violin and I had the guitar. So I was just kind of on my way and, um, I was playing some bluegrass and trying to play some swing and stuff and learn that stuff, jazz stuff and so i kind of started learning that what i was learning on the guitar i would try to transfer to the mandolin and the violin right as i learned it so it kind of and then it wasn't till see i was playing the guitar i mean i was playing a fiddle probably from about age 19 by the time i turned 21 i was in a band and a guy lent me a gibson a model and i played it in a band until i got my first uh, nugget mandolin oh cool so i was you know it was all sort of bound to happen, I guess, but it was, it was a, it was a long time coming to get the mandolin in my hands and have one regularly that I wanted to play on stage. Yeah. That's, um, it's interesting. I would, I would have never guessed that it kind of came along a little bit later in your, uh, in your, in your life because you play like a, you know, like some of those people you hear playing since they were four, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it's an amazing instrument. It's so, it's so versatile and, um, really was, uh, you know, the violin is a little more difficult for me technically for the intonation and playing up the neck and all that stuff. But uh, the mandolin is like uh, for playing melody, when you go from the guitar to the mandolin, everything makes a lot more sense. It's like it's so symmetrical and um, it repeats all over the place. No matter what key you're in, you can sort of see the patterns real easily. And um, 
it kind of was a it was kind of a, really the skies kind of opened when I got to where I knew my way around on the mandolin. I mean, it was like, wow, this is a really great instrument for all music. But but also just that very the nature of its layout, the violin and the mandolin there they provide a an entry an entry point into music that I think is harder in some ways on the guitar. I don't know. Also, it's easier to read. I think uh, read off the the uh, staff with a mandolin than it is for a guitar. It, you know, I don't know. You read on a guitar, you get into a different clef, and then you start. They've got all these chord. You know, you got to learn how to read the chords that way, and that's kind of that's really hard. And I've I've never really gotten into that, but I have learned a lot of fiddle tunes. And uh, I, actually, what during the this. Uh, pandemic thing you know kind of self-isolating is the old uh, o'neill's music of ireland book has really come in handy i'm really loving going through there and reading the tunes are you self-taught reading wise well you know when i was in grade school we had music class and we sung we sang from the page and so i learned a little bit of reading that way and you know maybe three or four months of piano lessons and then my i took some guitar lessons with a guy named Dale Bruning out in Denver, a renowned teacher, still around, um, and he wrote everything on the staff. So I learned enough that way. Mm-hmm. But then you know, start playing traditional Irish music, and um, my friend said, "Oh, you need to get O'Neill's Music of Ireland." And I said, "Oh, what's that?" I said, "Well, it's just this Bible." And so basically, you can go back, and I've got a real dog-eared copy here that I keep going back to, and. I've got a lot of other tune books and mostly I learn them by ear, but it's nice to just look at the page and kind of get into it that way. I always thought, you know, music to me, um, like tablature and, uh, this, the staff, the reading off the regular, you know, uh, staff, like trained musicians do. Those are ways of looking at music and, uh, learning it by, ear is a whole other way of looking at it you're looking at the same thing but it's kind of like your view of it changes on the way by the way you by way you get at it and each of them i think are are helpful and uh none of them is the end-all be-all and so it's kind of good to go at it that way and uh, to watch people and see how they play it and learn it that way as well yeah that's been a game changer i think with the uh, youtube you know, being a thing. That's like... revolutionized. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. You know, we used to, what I used to do to learn stuff was take the LP and play it at 16 and speed, you know, and that right, way it right. was almost, almost half speed. And that was helpful. Sure. So it's just every technology kind of gives another window into it. Yeah. Now there's programs out there on like iPads or computers where you can download the song, you can remove everything but the instrument you're trying to learn, slow it down, it stays at pitch. (laughs) It's just crazy. Yeah, the materials are are many. And and then, you know, what's funny about that, one thing never changes is is the music still has got to come out of you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, you got all these people showing you how to do it, but you still got to teach yourself how to do it. And you got to be able to do it without anybody else there. Right. And uh, that's that's the uh, once you cross that line, then you're on your way. And then all these technologies are very helpful. 
Who were some of the guys that you were slowing down to 16 on your uh, on your turntable? Well, I was slowing down um, Charlie Christian, and I was slowing down, uh, you know, as a guitarist. And I was slowing down um, uh, Sam Bush and David Grisman and Bill Monroe and uh, Kenny Baker. <laughs> Decide um, that that music was that's you want to try and make that a living. Well, I guess I didn't really decide. It was sort of um, I didn't know. I was wary of trying it as a profession, and <laughs> <Sure>. uh, <laughs> um, I thought I tried to go to college, and that didn't take very well. And I was interested in literature, you know, English literature, and I thought maybe I would learn to be a teacher or something or a writer. But after, after a year of college, I realized I'd spend, spend a two to one time studying my guitar compared to my studies at college. And I wasn't studying music. And I go, why am I doing that? What, if, if what really drives me is this music. Um, that's when I kind of decide I'll give it a try. I thought that I might learn some other aspect of the music game, like maybe learn how to make instruments, but I was never really that kind of guy working wood shop or anything. And so I was just avoiding it. So I decided well, I'll go be a ski bum and I'll play, I'll play uh, music in bars when I can get a gig and I'll see if I can go skiing. And I went to Wyoming. My had some friends that were spending the winter in Jackson, Wyoming. So went out there and um, I, I got some gigs, you know, kind of marginal gigs, but I couldn't afford to ski. So I learned how to play the fiddle instead. And uh, that winter, I just kind of I looked up about three years later. I left Wyoming because there wasn't, there wasn't enough musicians. I wanted to learn from other musicians and play in bands and stuff. And I ended up in Colorado and Boulder the following fall. And um, when I made a record of my own, that's when I looked up and that's also when my, my parents said, well, I guess you're a musician now. This is actually working out. Isn't it? <laughs> They're still worried about me and I was still was kind of cautious, but it was happening. And, uh, I looked up and I was, I was, uh, you know, paying my rent and, uh, was working out. It's getting better all the time. That's so cool. Is it, and then that's, I'm assuming when you got to Boulder, that's kind of when you started the, uh, started up with the guys in hot rise. Yeah. I was in a band, um, uh, actually a band kind of drew me there. I met a guy, uh, when I'm back in West Virginia, where I'm from, um, that had gone to school there, but he lived in Boulder. And, um, he, um, he said, you ought to come out, uh, to Boulder. We've got this music store, uh, folk arts music, and my buddy owns it. And, um, I do repairs and, uh, you know, fix guitars and banjos and stuff and teach lessons and you could teach lessons and, uh, you could be in our band. And so I landed there in 74 fall of 74 and then uh, met a whole bunch of musicians really fast there one one group of there was one group called uh ophelia swing band and we played uh you know 30s and 40s swing music and with string with a string band 
and uh, that was great. And then Hot Rise started a couple of years after that. So it was, you know, as a college town's a great place to uh, learn your craft as a musician because kids are going out and drinking beer on many days of the week, not just <laughs> Friday. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you can play, you know, you can play and it's not, uh, it's really kind of uh, an easy going training ground. You know, you can fall and get back up pretty easily in those kind of environments. Um, I would think, you know, Nashville, LA, New York, it'd be harder. You'd have to be really tough. You'd have to have your sense of yourself uh, all prepared and and be willing and determined. But I was in study mode there in Colorado. I really was in study mode. I spent, spent a lot of time practicing guitar, practicing scales and chords and rhythms, and uh, and on the fiddle and the mandolin as well. So I was really I didn't my head was in the music there, and I was finding ways to get jobs and to make my rent. It, it might be a fiddle contest or an instrumental contest, or it might be a gig or a sub with a band or something, but, um, you know, that was a great training ground. That's weird how these things work out too. You know, you move to Wyoming and somehow you land in Boulder by meeting somebody and you, you, you suddenly this career, uh, just blossoms for you. That's <laughs> so interesting to me. Well, you know, um, uh, you, you meet the people of your generation, um, who are striving in similar directions and you get with people that'll challenge you and that it can lead to good things. We were just trying to, um, you know, Pete, Pete Wernick moved from New York to Colorado and, uh, Nick had Nick Forster had moved there as well, uh, around the same time, early seventies. And, uh, they played, you know, we, we all knew each other. We played informally and then, um, it was just Pete wanted to get a little more serious. Well, we both uh, actually, yeah, that's what happened was Pete made a solo recording for a label called flying fish. And, um, and I made one for the local label in Colorado called biscuit city. And we helped each other out. And, um, Charles Sotel was part of both records. And, uh, when they were both ready to come out, Pete called me and said, why don't we start a band and play some gigs? And, we can promote our records. I said, that's a good idea. And, uh, so, you know, it was, um, we didn't really say, okay, in 10 years time, we will have played around the world and that's our goal. Or we, we would, we would make a record and we would win awards or some kind of thing that we never really, we just wanted to play some gigs. Sure. <laughs> and, right. uh, we thought we might play that summer through that next summer. And then that would be it. I didn't really know, but Pete was a really good, um, band manager in the early years. And he was always striving to get us more work. And it was basically, if you get another carrot, a little bigger carrot at the end of a light, slightly longer stick each time, then you can keep <laughs> your band together. And, uh, that's what he did. And, um, because we were kind of coming out of a vacuum in a way we were in Colorado, we just, we're trying to play traditional bluegrass, but because of our backgrounds, we just, without really knowing it, we were adding different things into it. And uh, it sounded a little different. Mm. I guess it was better that we started there in Colorado on, and had, had, you know, we were left to our own devices as opposed to trying to sound like 
um, Doyle Lawson and his band, who were just starting up at the same time, and they were really, you know, much more in the tradition. He had, you know, those guys had all gone to the school of Jimmy Martin and the Country Gentleman and all that. They played in those bands. And for us, for us, we were just hippies and trying to figure it out. Pete had some of this overview, but the rest of us were kind of new to it, and uh, we didn't really know what rules we were breaking. <laughs> 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 what was it like to um to to have that happen where it's you know you're like well maybe we'll play through the summer and then like you find yourself in another country you know after <laughs> you know what well, what was that ride like was it right after that first album for you guys where it really took off That first album is so great, uh, Hot Rise. Our first album uh, must have come out probably in 1980. I think we we started in uh, January of 78, and uh, we had a different guitarist for a while, a fantastic guitarist named Mike Scapp. And um, he quit, so then we switched, we shifted, and the, the band's sound completely changed when Charles started playing guitar because he played a more of a Jimmy Martin. Well, not the Jimmy Martin. I don't know what it is. It's Charles' style. He had his own style. And it, the whole thing just changed. We we couldn't. We were trying to play these fancy progressive bluegrass grooves, and we couldn't really do it with Charles. And but the traditional stuff sounded a lot better. So all of a sudden we said, "Well, that's what we're better at. So let's do that. We'll write some songs that fit in this. We'll be innovative in our way, but we can write some songs that fit in this this bag where it all works." And uh, actually, the other thing is Nick's bass playing. He wasn't a bass player. He just could play anything if he put his mind to it and so he he didn't know the rules of a bluegrass bass and he kind of broke them and it, that gave us a different sound so just a couple you know finally we got a record out a couple of years later and it i think charles is charles's uh artistic he set up the rules for our band in a lot of ways um you know we sang around one mic because it would look better and it would be easier in the long run. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of things that we did and the, the way the record sounded was about his sensibilities and his, his expertise with, with technology. And, uh, for that reason, I, I give credit, a lot of credit to Charles for how that first record sounds. It really does sound different than other bluegrass bands just sounds great, you know, and it fits, it doesn't fit out of place with any other like bluegrassy sort of stuff, you know, that I would listen to at the same time, but it also doesn't fit. Like, it just sounds a little bit different, like you said, and I guess that would totally, that would explain why. Yeah, Charles, you know, he was, uh, he was, he had real limitations on his, on his technique, mm -hmm. um, but he used them as a strength. Um, and, uh, he did things that other people would never consider doing. And so he just was really, we all played to him um, because there was no other choice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was, and then, you know, I'm kind of a smooth singer. Yeah. But he was also teaching me about, you know, Hey, listen to the way Jimmy Martin phrases this. Listen to how his, how his timing 
how his singing is set in the groove and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, he made, um, mixtapes, um, cassette tapes for, and we, you know, we, when we started, we bought a, you know, 78, but we bought a 69 Cadillac sedan Deville. <laughs> nice. So we had a four door car when we put a nice cassette deck in it and, um, he would make these tapes and we would listen to them. You know, we'd drive to Kansas city and, uh, from Colorado and listen to hours and hours and hours of these eclectic mixtapes. And, you know, so we're here in Bill Monroe and Peter Rowan and, uh, book of white and, uh, John Lennon. And, you know, it just went all over the map, lead belly and all the roots, good root stuff, Bob Dylan. And then back to Stanley Brothers, you know, so that those sounds were our education as well, you know, really set the tone of our band. Man, and you say, you know, you say Bob Dylan, that red on blonde album, man, (laughs) is so good. Again, when I made that record, I went to Charles and I said, Charles, you're the biggest Dylan fan I know, and you've got all the records, and I'm trying to pick songs here, but I'm I'm not sure I know enough of the repertoire. So we sat at his house for hours a couple afternoons and just went through the records. And he said, and he'd say, I don't know, how about Father of Night? You know, and I play it. And I went, yeah, maybe. You know, <laughs> we there were several. I made a I made a, a demo of. Uh, probably about 25 Dylan songs oh, wow. of guitar and voice. And, uh, I didn't get to them all for that record. Um, but yeah, th- it was, um, I just set, you know, set up a frame. I thought, well, what if you built a bluegrass house out of Bob Dylan songs and, um, you know, with the, them, them as the frame. And I learned so much about Dylan and doing that project. You know what? I didn't, a lot of people think, well, yeah, Bob Dylan's obviously he's O'Brien's really into Dylan, but I didn't know enough about him to do that. I had to go and get some help. And also I'm learning about it all the time. I mean, it's, it, I keep learning. God, the last one he put out is unbelievable. The one about, uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, yeah, the JFK 17 one? minutes. Yeah. It's just like, I listened to it like three times in a row. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, uh, that was a good hour. That was a good hour spent. <laughs> That's all. Um, you know, I, you were talking about um, when we were talking back about Hot Rise. Reminded me, I jotted this down. So when you when when Hot Rise was really like your main thing for a while there, did you start digging even more into mandolin, or were you still kind of playing guitar and violin and all those things as well? No, I really had to dig into the mandolin a lot heavier with that band um, because it was uh, I was being challenged to play at tempos that I wasn't used to playing at. And, um, I just wanted to get better at it. And I was, and then we started, you know, 1980, we started playing on the circuit, uh, playing at festivals nationally, uh, really in the next few years. And so it's like, Oh geez, are there so many great instrumentalists out here? I need to, 
I need to step up my game. So yeah, I was really paying a lot of attention to my fiddling and my mandolin playing and, and practicing. Uh, we, 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 uh, soon after we, a couple of years after we had that Cadillac, we got a funky old bus, uh, 57 GMC Greyhound bus. And we, uh, fitted it out for a band to go around in and we had a PA and that meant you were spending long hours and, uh, going from place to place because you weren't going to fly. You were going to use that bus. And uh, Pete Wernick and I played an awful lot on that bus. We played an awful lot. And that's just like calisthenics or like physical training. Uh, I mean, going 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 down I-70 while Nick's, Nick or Charles was driving or the road manager, Frank, and we'd be back there playing every fiddle tune that I knew you know, trying to play at faster tempos and getting the, you know, the tone right and everything. Yeah, I definitely studied up on this, but uh, those hot rise years were very much, uh, it was like graduate school for me. If I, I could say, uh, you know, it's kind of like I, I learned some music, but then I really went and, and dug into a certain genre and really kind of learned a lot more. Were there any um, uh, more obscure sort of artists that you dug into? As far oh, as mandolin wise goes, I should say. Mandolin wise, oh, I don't know. I really like that. Um, I really love the the mandolin players on. Uh, it was mostly, I guess, Paul Williams on uh, Jimmy Martin records. I liked the way he played. Yeah. Because he didn't. He played really simply, but a lot of drive. I really liked uh, the uh, Everett Lilly as well. Um, yeah. Once I got into the the traditional, once I got into the traditional music and got away from Sam Bush and. And David Grisman a little bit, I, I realized, wow, this is a whole other thing. And I started trying to incorporate some of that attitude you know they're all, they're kind of aping Bill Monroe, but they're doing it in a more uh, maybe more concise way. And uh, you know they have their own stuff they put in as well. But um, I don't know, uh, mandolin players. Uh, you know, I, I got all the standard deities. You know, I loved Frank Wakefield and Bobby Osborne and John Duffy and Sam Bush and David Grisman and uh, Mike Compton and all of them. I mean, I just I love them all. You're um you're playing. You you talked a little bit about your voice, which I love because it is so unique and so it, it is you. I mean, it's and it's so conversational and and fits everything you do. And your mandolin playing is the same way to me. Um, and it was funny when I heard your version of you do those short order sessions. I think it's called with uh, and you did Sweet Georgia Brown. solo kind of together and i'm like this oh, yeah. is like the perfect melding <laughs> i was like this is um whenever i hear you solo you always you always keep the the melody there you always know what song it's going but you obviously have the ability 
to um, also just shred as well. <laughs> but I, I love it. They're so similar to me um, when I hear them. It makes total sense. Well, that's really cool. You know, uh, it it became, and that's a, that's the thing. What you get from uh, listening to Paul Williams or uh, Everett Lilly, they're playing, they're really playing the melody a lot. And um, and you know, Bill Monroe would do that. All all, all the greats do it. They can do it when they want to. And uh, Bill Bill Monroe would step out and do the most far out thing too, um, alternately, alternately. But um, yeah, that. The reference to the melody is something that helps everybody get on, stay on the same page. I, I, I um, it helps me really to feel like I'm true to the music, but also it, I would rather, I would rather embroider on that and sort of keep it coming, a thread of it coming back rather than try to invent something completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, completely new every time it, it doesn't it doesn't work for me i think you know really when you hear these uh beboppers they're also doing that they've got a, various phrases and vocabulary bits that they throw in and reorder and revamp and make into something new every time mm -hmm. um but like i say the melody um just enough of it will really kind of help all that other stuff uh come through sure. in a better way Actually, I like to play a lot of times these days, actually having listened to a lot of uh, Celtic music where the melody is played in unison by various people at the same time. I actually like to sing and play the melody at the same time uh, as a as a sort of a feature, you know, like you you get tired of just playing the chords behind the vocal and then you can play a little, you know, little fills every once in a while between lines. But mm -hmm. Sometimes it's kind of cool just to play the same exact notes that you're singing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Harmonize with them too. Do that some as well. That takes a little more practice. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is, it is tough. And I also know, I know uh, a good exercise is to just take like the melody of the song and then learn the other two notes of the chord progression that you're not singing and play those against what you're singing and uh, if you're only playing two more notes beside what you're singing, it's this amazing loud. The, the the three notes all come out equally, and it's really kind of strong and wonderful. That's I'm writing this down to. It's kind of a nice, <laughs> That's awesome. Kind of a nice thing to do on a solo arrangement. If I can do it, I try to do it in places that features it. You know, um, I, I don't know if I have any recorded examples. I tried to do some of that on a song called. Uh, Get out there and dance, but get out there and dance. have great comping too that uh, it makes sense to hear you say that you listen to like charlie christian and, and some bebop and stuff too because again some of your comping um like isn't just like the chop chords of the one the four and the five they move which is uh that i love that swingy sort of feel and the um like that freddie green sort of uh rhythm comping stuff has always blown my mind so i love to hear it when you do that is that did you work on that intentionally as well 
I definitely worked on that kind of stuff. I, I was lucky to see Count Basie Orchestra with Freddie Green a couple times, and I got to sit I got to sit in the front row on a rain date. I got down to the theater for the rain date in Wheeling, West Virginia, where I'm from, and uh, I was supposed to play in the park. And I got down there, and I, I was right in front of Freddie, man. Oh. And you could hear the, wow. the sound coming off the wood and off his thumb. But uh, he seemed to be – he had a pick, but it looked like he was just drumming with his thumb. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, when I went to Colorado and I was starting to play with the Ophelia Swing Band, I was wanting to – learn you know this django stuff and eddie lang i guess you know uh charlie christian but the rhythm parts we were playing acoustic instruments and playing the rhythm parts uh on the guitar and on the mandolin i really wanted to learn that kind of thing and dale bruning really helped me find the voicings and he showed me stuff on the guitar and then i would kind of try to find a way to translate that to the mandolin myself so i kind of both his scale pattern, scale exercises, and uh, the chord um, combinations that he showed me, I I tried to learn on a mandolin. And it's no easy feat to comp on a mandolin. <laughs> How did you meet Daryl uh, Daryl Scott? Well, I went to when I was uh, I guess yeah I I sold a couple songs in Nashville mm-hmm. um, through a guy named Paul Kraft who wrote some songs for a lot of people over the years, uh, including bluegrassers like the seldom scene. Paul, uh, Paul wanted to publish a couple songs. So I got involved in the, uh, habit of coming to Nashville to co-write with other writers, try to get some cuts. Once I got a cut, then I went, Oh, this would be really worth my time to get some more cuts. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, it was worth a trip to Nashville and, um, but three or four years into that, I got signed to a publishing deal at Forerunner, which was a, a company that was started by Jim Rooney and Alan Reynolds, and they were both record producers. And they suggested on one of the early trips to Nashville that I write with this guy, Daryl Scott, that they think was doing really good stuff. So um, I knew of him. I'd seen him play with Sam Bush, maybe. But uh, anyway, I got with Daryl. We, you know, it was totally done by other people. They said these guys should get together and try to write a song. Well, we wrote a song. We got together, and um, the guy said, uh, the guy with Daryl's publishing company said, "Well, play him a song so Tim knows what you're kind of about." And he played this song called Uncle Lloyd. And I, well, even before he did that, he played a bunch of licks on the guitar real fast. <laughs> and I went, "Geez, God, this guy can play." And then, then he sang this song, and he sang like a bird. And the song was just like so incisive and so true to life and so beautiful and so i said well okay great i get to hang out with this guy anyway and we wrote a song we both liked and uh, we just kept doing that and uh i guess the following january i was uh gonna make a record and i asked him to play the guitar on the basic tracking and uh as that record production was finishing up, I was also planning on a uh, trip, uh, a tour of Ireland and UK and uh, solo. And I said, uh, I asked Daryl if he would like to do, you know, travel with me and do us. We would split sets. He could play the first set and I could play the second and we would play the sum together. So he said, great. So we went and uh, after the first night, we just played everything together. We didn't because it didn't matter it didn't matter what I played. He could follow it or he already knew it. Or 
um, I could sort of float along behind him as well, even if I didn't know it. But we also had a great body of material that we both knew together. Uh, it sort of revealed itself at Hank Williams, and we kind of went in uh, – kind of opened up that drawer and there was a bunch of other drawers adjacent that we knew in common and it was really simple and uh very free and uh mind-blowing really because uh, he was different enough he different enough for me um as a player uh but also close enough that there was there's a, a lot of cohesion, but there was also explosions, you know, and mm -hmm. kind of it was a good thing. It was a good thing. Sparks kind of flying in. Uh, we tried our best to conti continue that, and the records we made, we wanted to let that hang out. The the, the title were usually a lot better than this. Is the greatest live album title uh, possibly <laughs> ever. <laughs> it's so perfect, man. That, uh, did you have any cuts that people might not know that you wrote out there in the world? Some songs that you, that other people have done that maybe aren't like tied to you that you've done versions of? No, I, I, uh, I mean, I've had a handful of cuts by major artists like the Dixie Chicks. They did a song called More Love. I'm so close to you, baby, but I'm so far away There's a silence between us and there's so much to say You're my strength, you're my weakness, you're my faith, you're my doubt We gotta meet in the middle to work this thing out More love And I had, uh, Garth Brooks did one called um, When There's No One Around uh, or when no one's around, I guess is the title. And then, then Kathy Matea had some, and um, what you call it, uh, Nickel Creek had one called uh, "When You Come Back Down." Oh yeah, and and all those songs are songs that I sing on stage, and uh, they're not they're really nothing. I mean, there's a Dirk's there's a track with Dirk Bentley called uh, "You're Dead to Me." I co-wrote that with him and uh, John Randall when Dirk's was making his bluegrass record, and. I have not ever sung that song on stage, and it's kind of silly that I don't know it. Um, <laughs> you got a lot of songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. So uh, yeah, no, I uh, I don't have any secret songs. You know, I've got I probably have a lot of songs I've recorded that I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> not, you know, they don't really stand the test of time. <laughs> uh, well, you got to put them out there, man. That's how you find you gotta, out, right? You kind of try them out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that that more love though that version on real time, I mean uh, Dixie Chicks do an incredible version of it. But man, the the version that you and Daryl do just just gives me the chills. Well, it's is he's great to play with. Uh, you know, the Dixie Chicks recorded that song, and they also recorded uh, another song that was on real time called uh, "Long Time Gone." And they had a massive hit with that. And uh, you know, when we were getting ready to Fine, because see, we had we had performed a lot for a couple of years before we oh, a year and a half or so before we decided to make a record, and um, so we were playing other people's songs and the songs we'd already recorded. So all of a sudden, we got to find some new ones. Well, Daryl, you know, I'm going out to his house to sort of try to practice up a few songs to record, and he he had been out in his shed the day before looking looking for stuff that he had written, 
he finds his cassette with no label on it and he says i wonder what this is and for for whatever reason he decided to put that in the player and it was uh, a long time gone and he played it for me i said he said is this any good and i said this is really killer that's, i think that's really good let's do that on the front porch swinging looking out on a vacant field used to be filled with pearl and a back and now he knows it never will brothers found work in indiana sisters a nurse at the old folks home mama still cooking too much for supper and me i've been a long time gone and uh you know it's a measure of him he just sort of well you think this is any good <laughs> it's like awesome <laughs> that line in there about they sound tired but they don't sound haggard yeah uh, that is yeah. so cool <laughs> it's just such a great line so and you also have a couple grammys don't you yes i have a couple i've got one for uh folk best folk recording for fiddler's green and i'm also uh, a grammy holder a winner for uh the Earls of Leicester's first record in the bluegrass category. So I, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm real happy about those things. That's, you know, it's really, it's, people always say, Oh, it's great to just to be nominated, but I'll tell you, it's, it's even better. to win." <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. Can we get nerdy mandolin talk now a little bit? Oh, sure. Let's sure. talk. A, let's talk a little bit about gear. If, if that's cool with you. Sure. So your main axe do you, um, I guess I'll let you talk about your main axe in case anybody, I mean, I think I know what it is, but um, I've been wrong before. <laughs> so well, I've been, I've been playing mandolins, but they're made by a Nugget, or Michael Chemnitzer is his actual name, but his, his nickname is Nugget. And um, I played one that he made in 1976 uh, until about 2003. I got another one. He made a copy, or he made Tim O'Brien models that, uh, Collings and him collaborated on, and so I've been playing that on stage since then. It the the original one is a black faced A model with a real big, thick kind of baseball bat of a neck. Oh um, no, kidding! Yeah, it's the fingerboard is extra wide and the uh, and the the neck is real beefy. And uh, I think there's a lot of sound in that neck. I think that contributed a lot to it. But also, he just made a great instrument and um anyway uh, that one served me well and then he wanted to market these tim o'brien models they probably made about a hundred of them and he gave me one of the early ones and uh i didn't look back it has a more of a, it's still not kind of lower width neck it's still a little bit wider than that but it's more in keeping with modern mandolin stuff mm-hmm. and and it's got a radius fingerboard too so that thing look a lot friendlier to play and um i got i got really used to that and i haven't played the old ones as much but i have it out you know now that during this pandemic i've got about 10 instruments out in my music room they're also going to laying around nice and I've got that old uh, A model out, which is really fun. Oh Play man, I bet. How did you run across that? Because back then, I mean, was it was it something to find some of these smaller builds at the time? You know, like it seems like Gibsons and stuff were so so many people played them back in the day because they just had the name and, and the distribution. Um, and so yeah, there it- weren't there weren't as many makers of quality back then. They were just kind of starting to bubble up. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nugget was one of those. And uh, he, there's a personal connection with him. Um, 
this guy that I had met right when I was um, starting to live in Boulder. I'd been there for six or eight months, and I went back to my hometown in West Virginia, and I met this guy, J.D. Hutchison. He and his brother had a band called the Hutchison Brothers, and they were a really good bluegrass band. Um, they had a couple other guys playing with them, and uh, they eventually had a five-piece, and I would play with them sometimes for fun. He said, oh, you're living in Colorado. He said, our, our good buddy Nuggets just, just moved there. You need to look him up. He's he's making mandolins for the Ohm Banjo Company. He's going to set up their production. Well, they never did set up the mandolin production at Ohm. They they started and they made some prototypes, but it never really took off. And Nugget went on his own. Well, so I looked him up as soon as I got back to Boulder, and uh, we became good friends. Uh, and um, at some point, I said, you know, I'm borrowing this mandolin, and I want one, and uh, but. I, I said, can you make me a metal and can you, I said, I don't I wonder if I can afford an A model. I don't think I can afford an F5. He said, well, I've got this. Uh, I said, he said, yeah, I'd like to make an A model. He hadn't made one on his own. He's, he'd done one for a prototype for own banjos. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we started talking about it and uh, he said, well, um, I've got this really good top wood that I made an F5 out of, but it's, it's the same piece, but it's got a black line running through it. Uh, the the part right in the middle uh, of the spruce and uh, so I can't use it for a, 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 an F5 with a sunburst but he said have you ever seen a Gibson black faced mandolins he said would you you would you think that would be okay because I could use this top and I know I'm pretty sure it would sound good uh-huh. so that's what we did I said yeah get make it black and nice. so uh, <laughs> so that's what happened and wow. I told him I wanted a wider fingerboard and I didn't tell him much else I like the snakehead kind of man, uh, uh, headstock, but anyway, he just, uh, he came up with this thing and, um, it's really the first a model he made in his shop on his own. Wow. No kidding. This may have been the third, this may have been the third mandolin he made really on his own, but he learned and JD, JD Hutchison, who, who told me about him had, had known him in Ohio in, uh, in the college university town of Athens, Ohio. And Nugget was was blowing glass and doing some other sculpture or something, and and John saw his what he did with glass and whatever else. He said, "You know, you could make mandolins, and you ought to." And he told him, <laughs> and he had no idea, you know. Wow. He said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, I don't know. You just think you can." So he Nugget loved the music, and he he took him around to this guy that uh, worked at Stuart McDonald down there in Athens, the uh, instrument parts manufacturer outlet and uh this guy bob white was a good mandolin maker and a good mandolin player and he got him with bob and and he got to be bob's apprentice and in fact the first two instruments that he made at least the first one i know bob did the finish on it because nugget wasn't sure of himself yet oh wow so it's a personal connection with nugget and um that instrument that he made for me from the get-go was really loud and really beautiful sounding. And, uh, it really was an asset in the band. It helped me. I was, I wanted to practice a lot because it sounded so good and I wanted, (laughs) and I was in a band that needed that. So I was just trying my best to get it going. And, um, it, it became kind of a flagship for Nuggets business because we started playing around the country and, uh, his, his name got around and, 
people started buying his instruments. Yeah. So he's actually making me one now. I've got a I've got a bazooki that he made and a mandoli that he made. There, I've been playing the bazooki a lot over the years, but um, in the mandolin. But now he's making me a ten string. He's making me a mandola mandolin. Oh wow! So I'm excited about that because I have a I have a Vega that's like that. A Vega, what they call a cylinder back mandolin. Uh huh. Mike Seeger's collection of instruments when he died i was invited to look over stuff and see if i wanted to buy anything and i i uh was very honored to have that access and i ended up buying this vega 10 string thing so i'm getting i'm getting i think a a different version of that through nugget fairly soon so is it tuned like like a mandola and then yeah and then it has an e string as well it's got the yeah it's got it's both and it's a funny you know uh it's going to put me through my paces because I can sort of make sense of a mandola, but I'm always thinking in a certain key. That's not the key I'm in because I'm thinking mandolin. Right. Right. <laughs> so the, so this 10 string kind of makes me, I've gotten, I've practiced it enough to know what the chord names are on the low four strings. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's a help. Oh but man, it's, that's uh, cool. It's going to be cool. And, uh, that's kind of one reason why I've been like, I've been transcribing or not transcribing, but taking these Irish tunes that especially right now I'm working on a harp tune by uh, O'Carroll and um, called O'Carroll's concerto. And it's kind of like light classical music. It's kind of Baroque um, music for the harp. I, I don't know if that aligns with the Baroque period, but it seems, seems like that to me anyway. Um, it's probably from the 1500s or 1400s or something. 1500s. Anyway, uh, so I'm just trying to write parts that go with it. Like Jan plays, she can read off the page, and once she learns it, she can play it. She's not a great improviser. I've spent a whole lifetime trying to learn how to improvise, but now I'm trying to learn how to make the improvisations concise and make them into set arrangements and trying to find the notes that fill it out without covering over the other thing. They're not really – there's some counterpoint, there's some harmony, but there's also some sort of – just building blocks of chords that's sort of, I don't know, shed a little light on what the melody is doing. It's an interesting thing because I never have tried to do this. I've been doing it over the last year or so, trying to do this kind of thing. It's a new new way into the music, you know, so many different ways. It's great to hear that you're still striving for new stuff. You know what I mean? I think that's what keeps such great musicians so relevant. And I'm, li- I'm a lot like... Uh, some people that I know of whose careers I've followed, uh, who like, for instance, John Hartford, he got into, he wanted to really expand the genre. Yeah. And he did, he did that in a big way for sure. And then later in life, he went back to the roots of it and he started digging deeper and deeper into the roots. And I'm kind of doing that now. Um, Bill Monroe did that. He finally figured out he wasn't a radical. He had a started a tr- tradition, and then he went, "Oh, I better represent this tradition. You know, that's all I got to do. I better do it, and it's enough to do that." And yeah. So, um, you know, I don't have as much drive to try to find something new, but it, I stumble on it. Even so, um, by doing this, it's interesting. That's cool. That's the one thing during this pandemic. I've been listening to a bunch of John Hartford, and I realized like he's one of those guys I wish I would have seen live. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, man. He really, uh, you know, when he when he was in his real heyday, 
post, uh, you know, post uh, Aeroplane, playing solo. Mm-hmm. We played so many shows on the same festival bill with him and co-bills at concerts and stuff with Hot Rise and, and other things. And he was so, uh, you know, it seemed like all about the show. And I didn't, I was blinded by the show of it. He had this charisma and this dancing and he shifts and he do the, you know, sing about, you know, counterculture stuff and uh, flirty songs and that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. Kind of outrageous. And, and then somewhere in there i started realizing man this guy's really making a lot of music he's so engaging and so uh i don't know the way he reaches out and grabs you with this stuff um it's kind of mostly past his death that i started realizing what he could do as a as a performer but also as a interpreter Mm -hmm. his his set lists his performances solo performances were just unbelievable and the way he got the audience engaged was incredible and uh i mean i saw it at telluride one year he played and talk again he got he would get a new technology he go oh this is the best thing ever been invented i don't know why i didn't ever have this <laughs> when he got an electric he got the barkus berry five string fiddle he said man these are great i, I don't want ever want to play anything else <laughs> but then then he figured out about wireless microphones and he figured out he could go out into the audience and um he just had this microphone on his on his vest, and it picked up his vocal and his instrument. And he went out there and played the Orange Blossom Special at, in front of uh, dancing through ten thousand people <laughs> in the audience. And I'm going, well, God, how is he? He can't. He won't survive this. But he was fearless, and uh, he just he really knew how to grab the audience, but he also knew how to educate them. He'd grab them, and then he'd show them. Yeah. He had that. He had this uh, sort of strategy for his set list. He said the first song is for the audience. If I grab them in the first song, I can do something for the band. If not, I'll do another one for the audience till I grab them, and then I'll do one for the band. And if I grab the band, get them on my side, I can do one for myself. And uh, you know, that's really a good strategy. That's really uh, that's generous, and it's also being true to yourself at the same time. Yeah, man. Well, he uh, he was very supportive. John was, and uh, he really loved when I when I put a record out of the music from Cold Mountain um, called uh, "Songs from the Mountain" with Dirk Powell. He really loved that record. He just uh, basically he always wanted to know about fiddling. He wanted he wanted to play fiddles with me and get together and hang out. And as we had a, several friends, we would play with when we could and. Uh, but um, he, uh, you know, I started singing, I guess when he, when it was getting sick, you know, people were doing tributes to him before he even died. And I, I made a, I, I started singing Gentle on My Mind and I was asked to, you know, sing a song at the, at the tribute and John was there and uh, I sang that song and he said, well, no, now you need to sing that song every show. <laughs> <laughs> and of course he's right. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the best ideas he ever had for me. <laughs> and oh. then he asked me to sing it. I didn't know this through him, but it's through, uh, well, I did, I did hear it secondhand that he wanted me to, when he was in hospice, he wanted me to sing that at his memorial. And, uh, I'll tell you, man, his memorial, he, he bought a big 
bunch of moonshine and his stipulation for his memorial was that it was all drunk that day and uh i was at the end to sing gentle on my mind at the end of the thing i mean they had the osborne brothers they had i don't know who all played that the thing it was unbelievable um well we rehearsed the band was uh i got daryl scott allison brown sam bush mark schatz and then um vassar clements Wow. <laughs> and I just stood there and sang it. I didn't play. And, uh, and so then, so that we practiced it up. And then when the, uh, when the time came, uh, Vassar had to get to a gig, so he couldn't stick around. So we had uh Stuart Duncan. So <laughs> it's kind of like you, you're handed this responsibility and, uh, I wanted to take it seriously. And it just kind of, uh, it pretty much underlined a lot of things, uh, well, when I moved to Nashville in 96, I moved in June, and in September of 96, uh, Bill Monroe died. Oh, wow. And uh, going to his memorial at the Ryman Auditorium and seeing all these people there, and uh, you know, I looked in the crowd, and I knew a lot of people in the crowd, and I knew a lot of people that were singing his songs. I went, man, I'm in the right place here. This is really good to be here now. And um, And singing that song at Hartford's funeral about five years later was like, Okay, this is part of my job. Now. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to be true to this tradition and to the people that I came up with and learned from. So I, you know, I could, uh, I don't need to say anything else. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing story, man! Wow. I mean, it's it's a real honor. Yeah, it's a real honor, yeah, I and uh, I just try to be up to it. You know, I try to do my best to to live up to those people, and um, you know, it's a challenge. And uh, I'm not doing it, but I'm going to keep trying. I think the music itself is kind of pushing, and uh, the community is there's something invisible there that's part of it that's propping all this up. Um, I've played a lot of shows where I was so tired and my you know, be really sick. And I'm just thinking, this is just not going to, boy, this is a shame, but I'm going to try to do what I can. And so, and when you least expect it, stuff comes through. Yeah. And that's really from the music and the audience and, and, and they're all contributing to it. And, uh, so I'm just going to keep riding this wave of invisible, whatever it is, cause it's a beautiful thing. Right. That's so cool, man. Well, Tim, I got two more questions for you here during this this podcast. This has been amazing. Uh, Just I can't even tell you, like, my face hurts from smiling right now. (laughs) This has been great. Um, So the first one is, if you had 10 minutes a day to uh, pick up a mandolin for people listening, what is something that you would recommend them working on uh, that they could maybe work on in 10-minute bits that would help them get a little bit better? Man, I would I would learn I would uh, learn um, to practice getting the right sound out of the instrument. Um, practice, you know, getting the most pleasing tone up and down the neck on from string to string and even sounds and uh, volume and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's really to me like the sweet spot. You know, finding the right range of dynamics and how far your instrument and you can go is really and how how light you can play and still have it come out those all those things learning your sort of dynamics and your tone the way you produce tone that 
I think that's something that I have spent a lot of time in more recent, what, you know, when I only have a few minutes, that's what I'm looking at. And I also might look with the right hand, I might practice some tremolo just because uh, if I'm rusty, that kind of gets me going. It gives me a feel for how each string feels and uh, from, from the thick ones to the thin ones and up and up and down the neck too. You know, the way the right hand feels when the string is tighter, when you're fretting it up to the top of the neck where as opposed to open, they, it feels different. And learning that cycle of those things is kind of just play a little bit up and down the neck over 10 minutes and uh, feel how your right hand feels and your left hand feels and I think that's probably a good place. Yeah, that's great. What what um what type of pick do you use? A heavy pick, a thin pick? I use the um, Fender Extra Heavy, or lately I've been using these uh, Dunlop Altex. Oh yeah, yeah. One point Anyway, uh, or maybe heavier, but yeah, I've been using those. I you know I uh, use the round end of a standard teardrop shape, and I get sometimes I go to a regular heavy. Sometimes I like a regular heavy because it's a little more snap, uh, a little more high end. Uh, that helps sometimes when you're playing with drums, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You always need a little help with the drums, man. <laughs> <They're>, uh, <laughs> I think banjos are loud. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, actually, you know, playing, learn, I plug, plugged my instrument in after a certain point uh, when I started doing solo. And uh, that really you hear all the imperfections when you plug in mm -hmm. and um, that smartens up your technique. I started, I stopped breaking strings when I started plugging in cause I didn't have to hear I could hear myself. And then I also learned how hard to play and how, and what, what made it, made it sound best. And so then I, I've pretty much tried to stay in that zone. All right. And then last question, it is the mandolins and beer podcast. So do you have a, uh, do you have a favorite type of beer that you like to drink when you're home practicing or playing? So for beer, I guess I tend towards IPAs and pale ales, but yeah. I like a stout now and again. I get it. If I'm in Ireland, I'm going to get a Murphy Stout or a Guinness Stout. But if I'm in um, in a bar in the uh, United States, I'll probably get an IPA. Nice. Um, if I'm if it's a really hot afternoon, I might get one. I don't usually stay away from the wheat beers, but I'll get really hot afternoon. Sometimes I'll get a wheat beer and lemonade. I like that pretty good. Oh yeah, sounds awesome. I'm, I am about ready for a beer here today. It's just about beer time, right? It's <laughs> it Sunday. is about that time. <laughs> it's Sunday. Yeah, well, heck um, yeah. It's, it's time for beer, yeah. Yeah. Well, Tim, it is. it has been an honor. Um, I've been a fan since I picked up the mandolin, and um, I just want to thank you for the years and years of inspiration, all the great music, and, and then for, taking, for you taking the time to do this podcast. I truly, truly appreciate it. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Daniel. I want to thank you and all the mandolin players that have ever played and are will play because we need to keep this going. And I appreciate your doing that right in here and right now. Oh, thank so, you so much. Good luck. Good luck to you. And I hope we get to meet and hang out, have a beer, play those mandolins together. That would be amazing. Drink beers and play mandolin with Tim O'Brien. Are you kidding me? Hey, you know, as soon as this pandemic stuff is over, I'm going to text Tim and be like, hey, buddy, headed your way. 
Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Right now playing in the background is You Piney Mountain. It goes into Dusty Miller, and this is off the Crossing album that Tim uh, emailed me. It's coming out on May 1st, which will be available again for you to purchase. Thank you so much to Peghead Nation, Mandolin Cafe, Prohibition, and Toon Fox. Don't forget to sign up for their camp coming up here in May. And don't forget I got a live stream coming up here on Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on my Facebook page. Cheers, everybody. Take care.